the four main questions about the Genesis flood and Noah's ark. Number one, why would God send a flood? It seems like overkill. You ever thought about that? When you kind of stepped away from what you heard as a kid and, and Noah's ark and everything, the, 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 the heavens opened up and then the fountains of the deep and all the animals on the ark and cute little drawings. But when you think about that story, like everybody's dead. Almost. Like eight survivors. And so you're like, well, I know that the Bible says something about the earth being wicked, but you're like, gum. I mean, seriously, like... It's kind of like, uh, almost in our, our understanding, that's something like overkill. Uh, secondly, people ask, okay, well, we're moving on to the question of the flood itself, not just about the justice of it, but was it a global flood? Or was it just a local flood? Uh, number three, if it was a universal flood, then where did all the water go? Because remember, the Bible says that every mountaintop was covered up into around 20 feet or so doesn't make a whole lot of sense when you take into account Mount Everest, right? Uh, Number four, how did all the animals fit into the ark? Okay, and there's a lot of other questions, but I would try to just narrow it down to this. We've got a lot of stuff to do, so we may, this may spill over into next week, but we're going to try to get as much done as we can. And before we jump in, I just want to say something about this uh, study that we've been doing in systematic theology. A lot of probably deep stuff. Um, I, hope, I hope and I pray that this is not simply informational. Okay? I, I hope that this is not just so that we can know more about the Bible, that we can know more about how to reason and about apologetics and about argumentation. But this, would, this study that we do on Wednesday night, that this would call us to cause us to fall greater in love with Christ. And for us to just sit back and say, you know what, that is absolutely amazing. The fact that the flood happened and that God has given me a chance to live and that there is judgment coming, but He's given me a chance for mercy through Jesus, who is the ark, to save us from the wrath to come. I mean, all of this would not just be something we'd be like, well, that's cool. That's a cool fact. I never knew that, or, 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 or I agree with that, or I don't agree with that. But it would just be something we kind of take a step back and say, Lord, you are even more amazing than I ever thought that you were. And we leave this, we won't leave with anything on our lips or minds other than just thank you, Jesus. Okay? So I just want to let you guys know, you know, because we've kind of gone deep here these last few weeks, that the heart of this is that we would grow closer to Christ and not just theological Baptist nerds. Okay? <laughs> Um, in the beginning, uh, Genesis 1-1, we studied this last week, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and it was what? It was good. So when God created it, when it was God, it was all what? It was all good. So it's like, it's all good, okay? Now, uh, Genesis one thirty one. God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good, and there was evening and morning the sixth day. So in the beginning, it was perfect. But then we have... A process that we see here, and you can go ahead and write this down on your notes. It's creation, fall, judgment, redemption. God creates it, man messes it up, God judges man for man's rebellion. Then, God, because He's so full of mercy, He decides to give redemption. Now, if we marked redemption off, God would still be holy and perfect, right? But the fact that we've got redemption on the end shows us that God goes above and beyond the call of duty. So Genesis chapter 1, God creates the universe ex nihilo out of nothing, not ex material, right? Uh, Genesis 2, 
God um, provides Adam and Eve, Adam with Eve, and she is the mother of all living. So that kind of answers the question, what about the other people? Um, Eve is the mother of all living. Genesis chapter 3, Satan tempts, mankind's fault, mankind falls. Genesis number uh, chapter 4, Cain murders Abel. Now, now notice it's all good, right? When man is following God. The second that man chooses to disobey God, that's when literally um, all hell breaks loose. And so Cain murders his very own brother, and God begins to redeem. Now, notice, if you've got your Bibles, go with me to Genesis chapter 4 in uh, verse number 25. Okay? This is after, I mean, can you imagine, right? You're Adam and Eve. You know you've royally messed up. You've got your two sons. There's Cain. There's Abel. And one day, Cain kills Abel. I mean, can you imagine being a parent? Let's just stop here. Can you imagine being a parent and knowing that one of your sons killed another one of your sons? I mean, can you imagine how that would feel? Notice verse 25. The Bible says, And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also was born a son. Here's kind of fast forwarding, all right? It wasn't like he had a son, you know, right then. This is fast forwarding. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. Notice this phrase. At that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. So even after the fall, even after brother-on-brother murder, God calls people to begin following him. Then Genesis 5 is genealogy. Then in Genesis chapter 6, it really gets bad. Man's wickedness increases exponentially, and God declares judgment. I mean, this is, this is to the point, as we're going to read here in just a few moments, that it was so bad that God says the only way to fix this is to, is to destroy it. Uh, Genesis 7, the flood comes, only eight people survive. Genesis 8, the flood subsides. Genesis 9, God vows never to send another flood. Now, here's a really interesting, in fact, Lindsay, I think you've done a paper on this, right? So if you, if you guys have any questions about any of this, I'm going to refer you to Lindsay. She's the resident scholar on, uh, on flood legends and the epic of Gilgamesh. So there's, there's an old story. This is, um, I think, possibly the oldest. What did your research Did they say it was the oldest or close to the oldest story? The, the, the epic of Gilgamesh. Yeah, that was like the oldest recorded physical evidence that they had. Okay. Okay. <laughs> okay, nice. So this is an old story, okay? So if you go to a senior home, you definitely want to talk about the epic of Gilgamesh. <laughs> um, this is, this is from our friend's answers in Genesis. I'm glad you thought that was funny. I thought it was funny, Michael, so we can, we can laugh about that, okay? Um, as noted above, the flood accounts in the Gilgamesh epic and Genesis have many common elements. And Meryl uh, Unger, uh, is a really great scholar, proposes that both accounts share the following characteristics. And you're like, okay, it's already gotten boring and we're only on like the third slide. This is an interesting thing that what we believe to possibly be the oldest story on record is basically a large part of the story. It's about a flood. And we'll, we'll talk about the elements here. And I want you to think as we go through these, the, these, these aspects of the epic of Gilgamesh, all right? To think about, and we're going to look at more flood stories. If the flood never happened, why do so many of these people groups who are separated by oceans all have a story that the core elements are all the same? 
Here we go. Number one, uh, this states that the deluge or the flood was divinely planned. All right? It wasn't just a random freak accident. Number two, uh, they agree, this is the Epic of Gilgamesh and the Genesis account that we read in the Bible. They agree that the impending catastrophe was divinely revealed to the hero of the deluge. In this case, biblical case, it's Noah. Number three, to connect the deluge with a defection in the human race. It means that God didn't just send it randomly, it was for a reason. Number four, tell of the deliverance of the hero and his family. Number five, asserts that the hero of the deluge was divinely instructed to build a huge boat to preserve life. And we'll see in just a little bit how epically hilarious that actually is if you had been Noah. Uh, Number six, it indicates the physical causes of the flood. Number seven, they specify the duration of the flood, how long it was. Number eight, it named the landing place of the boat. Number nine, tell of the sending forth of birds at certain intervals to ascertain the the decrease of the waters. Very interesting. Number 10, uh, both accounts describe acts of worship by the hero after his deliverance. Wouldn't you feel like worshiping God if you had finally landed on, imagine that, for over a year in a boat with a bunch of animals and your wife and your kids? (laughs) And not just your kids, their spouses. You know, I can almost imagine that we're going to look at a few moments when, when the covering came off of, of, of the ark and Noah sent that out. I just imagine that, 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 that Hebrew tongue, that, that, that theological expression ah! of insanity, right? Can you imagine that? A whole year in a boat, number 11. Uh, they both allude to the bestowment of special blessings upon the hero after the disaster. And uh, by the way, all of this is going to be posted on the website. Matt should have it up in the next few days or so. It's on a PDF. So if you want to go check out any of these sites, um, that would be awesome. There's also another scholar, uh, K.A. Kinchin. He's not a cook, but he could be, right? Uh, my name is Kinchin the Cook, or Kitchen the Cook. Uh, as he said, a series of basic general similarities suggest a definite relationship between the two traditions. But there are also many detailed differences. Okay, and we also have uh, on our website uh, a link for this, and this is the link, and it goes to this. Now, this is just a small chart of cultures around the world who have legends of a flood. We've got the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Syrians, people in Asia Minor, Greece, Egypt, Italy, Lithuania, Russia, China, India, Cree, apparently it's a Native American tribe in Canada, the Cherokee here in the U.S., uh, the Papago in Mexico, the Aztecs, Peru, and what is I, the, the leeward? Okay, see, that's the thing. We need to start using a, uh, a screen here because when you project it on the wall, sometimes you have gaps, and then you think that the letters are speaking in tongues. Um, <laughs> you also have the Fiji Islands and Hawaii. Now, notice here the, the green represents a full representation of the biblical idea, which, in other words, if you picked it up, you would be like, wow, that sounds like Genesis. And this half, or this uh, red triangle here, um, represents partial representation of the biblical data. Now, right here, some people will say, "Well, does that mean that the Bible like ripped off a bunch of ancient legends?" No. What it means is that if you've got all of these cultures that are separated by, I mean, some are oceans, some are huge. I mean, you would never have, for example, um, interaction between between a Persian and a Peruvian. Okay? Delta didn't have that connection yet, right? 
That's just really far apart geographically. So why would they both have stories about something that sounds very, very similar? Um, Just a few big ones here. The Greeks had uh, a story, a flood legend, that Zeus destroyed the human race except for two wicked people. Obviously, the Greeks got this wrong, but they got some of it right. The Babylonian uh, Enuma Elish, which we actually have last week, but we didn't have time to get into, the gods sent a flood and only one family survived. The Epic of Gilgamesh says, quote, When the seventh day arrived, I sent out a dove. The dove went out but came back. There was no resting place. What does that sound like to you? And once again, for people who, 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 without examining the evidence, just with a predisposition to say that Christianity is not true and the Bible is nothing but fables, will say, oh, that's nothing but a fairy tale. You say, now hold on, how could it be totally false if we have, once again, these cultures separated by huge, vast areas, but they're all telling a story that looks very similar? Isn't this cool? I think this is amazing. But here's our question. <clears throat> Why send the flood? Have you, has anybody in here, have you ever thought about this? Like, doesn't it seem maybe to be a little bit much on maybe first glance? Like, why? I mean, look, look at this picture. Imagine, I don't know if this is how it happened, but like you're the last person on the rock there, right? And you know that there's nowhere else. And by the way, the biblical text says that it wasn't Noah who shut the door to the ark. Somebody remember what happened there? That, if you're talking to a lost friend about this, this is a great way to make a a very non-politically correct statement, but it's very, very true, and it ties in with the New Testament to say that there's a time for mercy and there's a time for judgment. And when the time for judgment comes, God shuts the door, and when God shuts the door, you can't enter. Some people have the idea that they can get saved whenever they want to, right? They can get saved whenever they want to, and it's their choice. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that there is none who seeks God. There is none who does good. No, not one. So it's not so much that we, don't, we can't necessarily get saved. Obviously, we can't. But it's that a person outside of God really working on, they're not going to want to get saved. So the fact that every time you see an ark should remind you that it was God who shut the door, but God gave 120 years of mercy for people to repent. So here's um, what the text actually says. This is Genesis chapter 6, verse 11, if you want to mark it in your Bible. I want you to hone in on this text, and I, I underline some of the key, ver- key words here on the screen so that we wouldn't miss it. The Bible says, Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight. So in whose sight was the earth corrupt? Like, yeah, duh, Jeff, you have it up on the screen. So, but I think, I think it's easy to gloss over this, that what we're about to look at, this is God's view, not ours. The earth was corrupt, not according to man's standards, but according to God's standards. And here's what it is. And the earth was filled with violence. Verse 12. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined, that kind of sound like God was determined, like, he's saying, like, this is, this is my choice, right? If God says, I have determined, then God's going to do it, right? God's not throwing it up in the air. I have determined to make, this is bad, uh, an end of all flesh. Wow. For the earth, and here's the reason. God's not saying, I'm doing it capriciously or just because I can. For or because the earth is filled with violence through them. 
Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. But then verse 14. It's so cool. Make yourself an ark. It's like God saying, you know what? The world warrants judgment. It's coming on the world, but I'm giving you a way of escape. So here's a few questions that I want us to to discuss here. Um, We're going to look at three points from the Bible. I would encourage you just to write these down. Then we're going to discuss two questions relating to the question, why the flood and is it overkill? Number one, the, the first thing that we have to understand is that God is holy and hates sin. Genesis 6, 6, Isaiah chapter 6, verse 3, Revelation chapter 21, verse 8. God is perfect and holy, and God's nature is that he hates sin. See, well, I thought that God was love. God is love. But think about children. Because we love children, we hate kidnapping, right? Because we love children, we hate child molestation. It is in the nature, if you love something, you have to hate that which will destroy the object of, of your love. So number two, God is just and will punish sin. Exodus 23, 7, I believe it says, um, and I will not leave the guilty unpunished. And point number three, God does not tempt or cause anyone to sin. So somebody says, hold on, I thought that we, we say that God's in control and he's sovereign and that he can't be altered by the decisions of corrupt people. Well, then how do you get God is in control, but yet people are doing bad things? Well, James chapter 1, verse 13 through 15 tells us that God is not tempted by sin, nor does he tempt anyone to sin. But each one, having been tempted, is drawn away by his own lusts and enticed. In other words, the reason why we do what we do is because, like John Piper said, it feels good. It's like we do it because it brings pleasure. But in the end, that pleasure brings death. Okay? So this is, this is, this is basic understanding of why God sent the flood. So here's the first question I want us to talk together for a few minutes. Uh, Could it be that our own sin, as well as our culture that excuses sin, has diluted our sense of justice? Do you think that's possible? If so, why? Or maybe why not? What what do you guys think? I think it's definitely possible. Like, if you think about um, back when there was uh, slavery... Um, and that was legal and, and that was okay. Mm-hmm. You know, people had changed their ideology to fit around their framework so that, you know, it, it didn't seem like it was wrong to them. So they were able to excuse their sin. Hmm. Great point. Yeah, the example of slavery. Very good. In fact, there were some American theologians that wrote uh, papers um, saying how the Bible advocates or justifies slavery. So, good good point. What, what, what do you guys think? Anybody else? I think if you compare some of the writings of, say, George Washington, who was a very prolific writer, that honestly, I think some pastors would feel shame mm-hmm. because of his, his personal sense of moral standing in right and wrong mm-hmm. compared to what is considered even conservative in our culture. Mm-hmm. That... The, the standard, I mean, that was just the standard back then. Right. You can contrast that to today, where if, if you're not just it's really, really, really bad, oh, you must be really conservative. No, I'm just Christian. Hmm. And it, it's just funny what, what was 
totally foreign and unacceptable, and people could not fathom doing something like that. Today, people just accept, oh, well, that's just the culture. Well, the culture's wrong. Good so, job. Good job. I think they, Very good. Uh, good point, I think Michael. They made it look like they're, it's okay to take prayer and uh, the commandments out of school. I think they justified that okay. for themselves. Okay. Yeah, just why don't, why don't we just remove God from everything because someone may be offended, but the, yeah, that's... What about the ones that it offends that uh, right. it's not in a school? Right. You know, yeah. Mean, they don't pass. They don't right, exactly. Yeah, good. You know, often I think it's so easy for us to accept the cultural paradigm that I thought sometimes, like Jeff, if you had been, if it had been outside of the Spirit of God and you had been born at, a, at another time in history when certain things were, quote, okay, if it had not been for the Spirit of God, do those things too. But I think that's, that's where the gospel is amazing and it transcends this to say that even though our culture, and I would just say I'd, probably most of us can agree that our culture seems to be on, like one older, older man in Texas who I know, he, he called it, progressive digression. It's, it seems like we continue to progress in going straight down the tubes. And each time we take that march downward, it seems right. Why? Because everybody's doing it. And we go back to the book of Judges when it says everyone did that which was right in his own eyes. So here's, here's the, the second question when we're asking, because often when we, when we approach like, okay, God killed everybody except for eight people, that seems to be overkill. Here's the second question. Could it be that God's sense of justice is more refine, refined than ours? Could it be that God's sense of, not ours, you know, once, once again, um, it's it said that in God's eyes, right, it was corrupt. Could it be that God's sense of justice is more refined or more accurate than ours? I would think that we would have to... What's that? No question about it. Yeah, no question about it. I mean, if we're, if, we're, if we're free thinkers, if we're open and honest, we've got to entertain at least the possibility that God, who created everything, may know a little bit more about justice than us. Right? And I don't know about you, but man, I would never want to say that I have justice totally figured out. I mean, would you? Like, whatever Jeff thinks when he gets up in the morning and when he's not had a lot of sleep, that he said, Raw. I mean, I would want that to be universal law. Good night. That'd be a jacked up universe, right? I mean, let's just think about the mistakes. Think about the things that we have done in our own lives that we're ashamed of, that we wish that we never would have done. We still don't understand why we did them. And we're, we're, even when we get up today, we say, Lord, I know that you've given me forgiveness, but I feel like kicking myself in the pants. Why did I do that? And if we make mistakes and we have regrets and we have guilt, then we need to be very careful. I, I, I would use this line of reasoning with, with maybe an atheist friend or someone who would discount Genesis because God killed everybody but eight people. See, I think that we, at least me, see, I'll be very careful at leveling a judgment against God. And you can also use the postmodern, right? The whole thing that says, well, well, it's right for me. That may be your truth, but my truth is this, right? I have my truth and you have your truth. Well, you can, you can piggyback onto this and use it for evangelism to say, now, are you really saying 
that those people who believe that the flood was just are wrong? Because if they say that, they're doing the very thing that they accuse us of doing, you see, of making a moral judgment, like saying, well, that's wrong. Well, I thought that wrong depends on the individual, which we know it doesn't. We know that, but they don't know that. So we can kind of use their own weapon against them, not in any sense of like a physical, right? You know, we're all on the same page. Like we don't do that, you know, but in terms of leading them to Christ. So I, I think that we have to understand that God is, is perfect and holy and just and that his sense of justice may, may transcend ours. And I, think, I think it does, absolutely. Um, I want to read to you this statement. Um, I don't know if you can find this online. This is a really awesome article called uh, by Clay Jones, We Don't Hate Sin, So We Don't Understand What Happened to the Canaanites. And the Canaanites, God said, go in and kill everybody. We think genocide, right? Here's what Clay Jones says. Skeptics challenge God's fairness for ordering Israel to destroy the Canaanites, but a close look at the horror of Canaanite sinfulness, the corruptive and seductive power of their sin as seen in the canonization of Israel and God subsequently instituting Israel's own destruction because of Israel's committing Canaanite sin. Let's stop right there. Um, That included child sacrifice. To take a child, to build a fire underneath a huge idol, to throw the child into the fire. Okay? It included uh, ritual incest, uh, bestiality. There were temple prostitutes, both male and female. Um, if you want the article, I can have Mary um, give you a copy. I brought this up in class, but I didn't feel um, in one of my uh, doctoral seminars. But I, I, feel, I don't think that we should edit but some of the stuff from these tablets that they've translated was so perverted and so grotesque. And we even went over this with one of our Sunday school teachers several months back on how to address this issue right here. But I did not feel comfortable in going into it. It is unbelievably um, deep, deep perversion. So that's, that's what it means, Canaanite sin. The cause of Israel's committing Canaanite sin reveals that God was just in his ordering the Canaanite's destruction. But... Western culture's embrace of quote-unquote Canaanite sin inoculates it against the seriousness of that sin and so renders it incapable of responding to Canaanite sin with the appropriate moral outrage. So what, what Clay Jones is arguing for here is that it's very easy for us to take in what our culture tells us about justice. So let's get to the kind of the science part, and I'm going to defer to Sue on this too. She is the resident science expert, so if I get anything wrong, Sue will correct it for us. Okay, now here is a fact. If you dig and you find fossils, you find billions of dead things. Y'all remember that from science class? We never want to walk over a graveyard, but if we probably knew most areas of the world somewhat, the whole thing is a graveyard, give or take. The question is how do fossils form? Millions of years are quick burial. Um, we have a link here by John Morris, Dr. John Morris of the Institute. ICR.org is a great website, Institute and in Creation Research. And the article is called, Are Fossils the Result of Noah's Flood? Um, here is a dinosaur graveyard in Big Horn, Wyoming. That's kind of cool, right? I mean, seeing, but all that's death. Right? Is is the thought ever crossed your mind like when you see a fossil, you're like, man, that is like Duke Nukem. Y'all remember that? (laughs) Remember that computer game, right? You just go like the first person shooter and you just like body count is like four million. Just continue to butcher everything. Um, Think about this. Uh, Another picture of, um, of fossils. That's all death. 
And something else, every time you go to the beach, and I love the beach, when you look out on the ocean, do you know what it should remind you of? It should remind you of God's judgment against sin. When we look at fossils, it should remind us of God's judgment against sin. But there are some people who say that it could have never happened. Actually, that's a Nintendo fossil. Okay, guys, you know, ever, ever digging? I think, that's, I think that's Nintendo 64, but I'm not sure. Um, <clears throat> but we're always told, without exception, that it takes millions of years for fossils to form. Um, there's, a, there's a couple of interesting things here that I want to bring to your attention. Um, this would be called a polystrata fossil. Um, so, so I want you to go with me. If, if all the time, at all places and all times in the past, rock layers accumulated slowly, then that would have to be the, the case always, pretty much, in order for it to be a rule. But um, here, this would be a petrified tree going up through the strata. So either this is an exception to what some people think is the rule, or that's a really, really old tree, and it had a really, really slow death, right? To grow up for millions of years through the strata. Um, here would be uh, in Cumberland, this is Bear Valley Strip Mine in North, Northumberland County, Pennsylvania. Um, because the picture is stretched out, you can't see it as well, but this is another tree that goes right up through the rock layer. Um, and this is another one in Cumberland Basis, uh, based in Nova Scotia. It goes right up through the rock layer. This is really interesting because some people say that it always takes millions of years for something to become petrified. But I would love to visit here um, if I were to go. You know about this, Trish? Mother, Mother Shipton's Cave, it's a great place. If we lived in England, we could bring the kids and scare them to death, right? Okay, it's uh, Mother Shipton's Well in Yorkshire, North Yorkshire, England. It takes about three months to turn a small teddy bear into stone. It's English's, England's oldest tourist attraction opening in 1630. But there's some type of, I'm not exactly sure how it works, but they hang, they hang boots and hats off of um, this little waterfall here, and over a period of several months, the process of petrification sets in. It's very weird, and you can just imagine if you were in the 1600s what you would have thought. Um, somebody would have possibly gotten burned at the stake, right? You wanted to stay away from other Shipton's well. But that's an example that always doesn't um, take that long. Another, another example um, in regard to fossils forming would be the eruption of Mount St. Uh, Helens. That's a big explosion. Oh, yeah. yeah it is, right? <laughs> Gave you like explosions, huh? <laughs> yeah, when that went off, which was the year that I was born, it was the year of, I get were fanny packs in in 1980? You're like, that's really random. I just, I, I always, I don't know if you guys ever remember, but like family vacations, I always remember one of my uncles, he would always sport the fanny pack and bike shorts. It always made that trip to the zoo a little, little embarrassing. You know, you'd walk up and all the lions would go back in their cage and everything. So um, anyway, I don't know where that came from. 1980, I'm sorry. Um, not St. Helens. Um, here's, a, here's a quote. We have all of this documented here. The Mount St. Helens... Uh, erupted in Washington State, uh, produced 25 feet, 7.6 meters of finely layered sediment in a single afternoon. <clears throat> Up to 400 feet thickness of strata have, been, have formed since 1980 at Mount St. Helens. These deposits accumulated from primary air blast, landslide, waves on the lake, pyroclastic flows. Throw that out in a random, random conversation, pyroclastic flows. What do you think about that? 
um, mud flows, airfall, and stream water. Here's another statement. This is from um, creationscience.com. Polystrata fossil, um, what we talked about earlier right here. Uh, fossils crossing two or more sedimentary layers or strata called poly, many, strata, strata fossils. Consider how quickly this tree trunk in uh, Germany must have been buried. Had it been slowly, its top would have decayed, obviously. Um, the tree could not have grown up through the strata without sunlight and air. The only alternative is, and I would, I would mark this down in your notes when we think about Noah's flood. It's very interesting, it's very controversial, but rapid burial. Some polystrata trees are upside down, which could occur in a large flood, or the tree found a really strange way to grow, right? It would have really been the oddball in like tree kindergarten. Like, no, you don't grow upside down. Get back here. Um, soon after Mount St. Helens erupted in 1980, scientists uh, saw trees being buried in a similar way in the lake bottom sediments of Spirit Lake. Polystrata tree trunks are found worldwide. And one is right here. So if layers are always formed slowly over millions of years, then why do we find things like this? So this is Mount St. Helens before. Um, this is Mount St. Helens after. And so the question number two would be, was it a local or a worldwide flood? Hugh Ross, um, he advocates a local flood. <clears throat> Let's, let's take a look here at this next slide about if the flood was local. Um, some people do, do say that. They say the flood was local. It wasn't universal flood. Okay? If it was local, then why did God tell Noah to build such a big ark? It would kind of be unnecessary, right? If the flood was local, why didn't God just tell Noah to move? If all the sin was there, God's just going to wipe it out. Why not just move? Number three, uh, why put animals in the ark? They undoubtedly had populated other areas. Why didn't God just tell the animals to move? Uh, number four, why were birds in the ark? Uh, if you're a bird, you can just fly, fly away, right? Like the song. I mean, birds would be like, why do I need to be in the boat? I can, I can fly. Number five, uh, the local flood was for over a year. That's a long time to have a local flood. And if FEMA had shown up, it would have been like one year and a half. Okay. Uh, number six, why would God promise and then break his promise? Because remember God promised never to send that kind of flood again? God is royally messed up. Okay, you understand? Okay, because there have been a lot of local floods. So those, those are, and this is uh, adapted from Ken Ham's book. It's called The Answers Book. It's a really, really good resource. Um, I would encourage you guys to pick it up. And so um, number three, where did all the water go? And this is probably one of the biggest objections to the Genesis flood of, okay, we've got this thing. Um, we'll just go through this. The objection is, but a worldwide flood would be impossible today. Somebody tell me what, what, what basis would somebody say this upon? Like, like today. Okay, all right, and, and, and remember what, what it said about it covering every mountaintop, and we've got that big bad boy called Mount Everest. Like, how much water would it take to cover, I mean, you think about the whole world covered in Mount Everest too? Um, here's, here's a rebuttal, okay? Here's, a, here's one response. How do you know that the topography of the earth is the same now as it was then? In other words, when God originally created the world, do we know that he created Everest, 
Or could it be, as we're going to look at, and I think this is, this is a knockdown argument. A lot of these things we can pose as, as possibilities, but I think this next one is a knockdown argument from Psalms, pre-scientific age. But could it be that God created the earth relatively without gigantic mountains, but when the mountains rose and the valleys sank during the flood, it could have been caused then? So the presupposition here when people say that the flood can never happen is something called, this is another great big word, uniformitarianism. Let's all say that. Uniformitarianism. Okay? And I, w- I wouldn't bring that up right when you talk to somebody because they'll think that you're a lame and they'll think that you're a nerd. Okay? But it is, the present is key to the past, which means that what we see now always has been. Now, there's an opposing uh, idea called catastrophism. Uh, catastrophism is the idea that many of the Earth's crustal features, strata layers, erosion, polystrata fossils, etc., formed as a result of past cataclysmic activity. And when you look at Genesis, the first nine chapters, especially six through nine, you see some big time, the bottom falling out, right? Like big time catastrophe. So um, I was going to make a joke there about catastrophes and some of you men who are enduring that, but in interest of self-preservation, I'm just going to go on. I think it's funny. If you want to go laugh and get a good joke, you can look at that on the website. Um, but uniformitarianism, catastrophism. I'm just going just to read this section to you so we understand exactly what we're talking about. Um, uniformitarianism together with the geologic column presupposed by Lyle, who was a, an evolutionist-esque guy, um, based on uniformity, have been disproved by deolo- geologic features such as polystrata fossils, misplaced fossils, missing layers, and misplaced layers, um, including layers in reverse order or ancient layers found above modern layers. Remember, right? The, the lower you go, the older it is, and so forth, without variation ever, what we're told. Furthermore, observed cataclysmic events such as the eruption of Mount St. Helens in 1980 time of the fanny pack, have validated catastrophism, which is contrary to uniformitarianism. We now know that catastrophe has had a significant role in forming the Earth's currently observable features. And I wish that we could get into this tonight, but we've got a lot of great links on the website that you can go look up at arguments, everything from the Grand Canyon to certain rock layers around the world, and it's a very, very, very interesting idea. If you think that if all of this underwater um, reservoir blew up by way of basically volcanoes and then the heavens opened up, if you understand that, that there was some type of a protective uh, water covering around the earth, and if all that happened, and then after the flood was draining off and the mountains rose and the valley sank, you would have, I mean, massive amounts of water, just like sometimes you can, you can tell um, when it's coming down a hill. It just cuts through the mud. It just cuts through everything. If you think about how much it was, it could even cut through, cut through rocks. So here's what the Bible says. It's good to talk about the Bible now, right? Okay. Uh, Genesis chapter 7, verses 18 and 19. The water prevailed and increased greatly upon the earth, and the ark floated on the surface of the water. The water prevailed more and more upon the earth so that all the high mountains were covered. Here's our problem. Mount Everest, at least the, the, the most recent I've, I've found, they, they found it was a few feet higher. It's 29,035 feet above sea level. 
And there's around, they said around 200 bodies up there of people who've died, not been able to complete it. They haven't yet found. It's a, I mean, that is a beastly, beastly mountain. Some people have to do it with oxygen tanks to climb up because it's so high. Um, here is our knockdown argument for what about Everest. Psalm chapter 104, verses 5 through 9. The Bible says, speaking of God, He set the earth on its foundations so that it should never be moved. Here it talks about the flood. You covered it with the deep as with a garment. The water stood above the what? Mountains. The mountains. At your rebuke, they fled. At the sound of your thunder, they took flight. The mountains rose and the valleys sank down to the place that you appointed for them. You set a boundary that they may not pass so that they may, might not again cover the earth. It says in Genesis chapter seven eleven. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened. And then you think, um, actually, we're going to go to, uh, we'll pick this up next week, but I want to give you a slide here. Um, Where did the waters go, right? Where did they go? We're still building on that idea. Just one example here, the Mariana Trench. If you've got the whole earth and it's covered in water, how do you make or how do you bring forth dry land? You make the mountains go up and the valleys go down. What we have is something called sea level. We've got Mount Everest, which puts a lot of water deep in the ocean, and we've got deep oceans all around the world. So I think that's right there a knockdown argument against how could you have a worldwide flood Notice the Bible says that the mountains, if there were, they rose. So there couldn't really have been anything higher than Everest, possibly. And then the valleys sank. So that way you have an equilibrium. You can have the oceans holding the water. And you can have dry land and huge mountains that offset the water in the world. So we are out of time tonight. What we're going to do is we're going to pick this up next week. Actually, we're just getting to the good part. We've just got all the foundational issues down. So thank you guys. Um, do we have any? You guys have any observations? Any points? Questions? Anything you want to share? Yeah, good deal. If you go, I can't remember which side it is. It's either Kenyon's side or the Institute of Creation Research. They have a wonderful video which shows the whole, it's basically a simulation of basically the fountains of the deep, basically underwater water bursting forth mm-hmm. up into the air, spewing up in the air right. like miles. Yeah. And then showing basically land masses according and voting mm. up, which mm. accounts for a lot of the <coughs> Right, and, and thanks. When you see the simulation that way, it's like, wow, that all makes sense. Yeah, and thanks for bringing that up because the Bible does say that there was not rain before the flood, that the whole earth was watered by basically underground springs. And if the whole earth had enough water underneath, like anywhere you drilled, you could find water, then if all of that busted through, 
then that's where you find a lot of the where the, where the earth, you look at it and you're like, man, somebody jacked this place up. And you see all the ripping of, of the texture and, and, and the, the, the sculpture of the earth. So it's, uh, it's very, very interesting. I do, I do think one thing you can say for sure is that people who would discount the Bible because of Noah's flood, because of, and we've not even gotten into the, to the real stuff. This is all intro because we've got a lot of stuff in this study. They cannot make a case. They cannot make a case scientifically that this could have never happened. And furthermore, I would say that the evidence, they're going to be the after ones to have to explain away the evidence, by the way, of what a lot of what we see, especially when you crack the dirt and you find billions of dead things all mangled and pressed together. So anyway, that's awesome. I look forward to seeing you guys next week, and let's go to Hardy's and, uh, and eat, some, eat some good stuff. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this um, truth that you give us in your word and how you've used science to confirm time and time again the truth that you're, uh, of your word that people have taken by faith for thousands of years. And I pray, God, that you would help us, that you would prepare us to, to have patience and to have love for people who are not um, yet persuaded that you are real and that you would most of all, God, impress upon them their great sin and your great love. In Jesus' name, amen.